The Dugout CEO Podcast is on the air. I'm Phil Van Horn, baseball lifer and fan of the Dugout CEO. Each week, Casey Cavell goes around the horn with baseball superstars, Hall of Fame coaches, and business leaders who've used baseball experience to win the game of life. Now batting, Casey Cavell. Dugout Nation, welcome to the Dugout CEO Podcast, a very interesting show that we're going to have for you today. We are joined by John Woods. John had a 35-year career working with clients as a wealth manager and advisor, and he's the former owner of the Chattanooga Lookouts, the AA affiliate of the Minnesota Twins. If you Google John five years ago, the stories you read would be a lot different than the ones you would read today. Today, you would read articles that have used the words Ponzi scheme, charged with a felony, and pleads guilty. So why would I have someone on my show that has pled guilty to a felony and is currently awaiting sentencing? Because I'm a believer that it's not only wise to learn from your own mistakes, but also from the mistakes of others. And I also believe in redemption. And although this world might put a certain label on you, it doesn't have to be the end of his and or your story. So I hope this is not the end of John's story, that his next act will be better than his previous. And I hope you learn from John so you can paint a different story for your life. John, welcome to the Dugout CEO. Thanks for having me, Casey. Good to be here. You, you bet. And you were one of the first people I met when I moved to Atlanta back in, shoot, 2011. So it's cool to have you on the show. I appreciate, like I said, it being here. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit. I know you got boys that are football guys. You're a football guy, but I got connected to you through baseball and some of your right. sports academies and speed and agility training complexes and stuff like that. But give me a little bit of your baseball background. Yeah, well, you know, I guess I'm like a lot of people my age growing up in the South. We we grew up around baseball and, and football, basketball. You know, I'm 58 years old when I grew up in Tennessee. Soccer wasn't real prevalent then. It was just coming on the scene, and there was no lacrosse like there is now. There's so many kids playing lacrosse. So, so baseball was something we did seasonally, not year-round which we can get into in a minute. There's good and bad in that. And it's also something we did growing up in the neighborhood. You know, you grow up, the time you can walk, and you're in a neighborhood with a bunch of other kids your age or a couple years older, a couple years younger. You're playing wiffle ball. and You just get a love for baseball. And so I think that's where it all got instilled in me. The, the love of that game was playing in the neighborhood growing up and then playing on an organized team in a rec league. You know, my boys all play travel baseball. They would start in January and finish in July. We would start baseball, you know, in March or April, and you play till the beginning of summer, maybe do an all-star team, an all-star game, and then that was over. <laughs> you know, you spent all summer at the pool and then waited for football to start in late August. But, and then growing up around it, watching it on TV, you know, where I grew up, everybody was a Braves fan. The Braves had moved to Atlanta in like 65. So, uh, you know, in my, in the seventies, we, we didn't have cable yet. I was probably 12, 13 years old, but we would get, you know, a weekend game that was fun to watch. Uh, but when you get, when I got about 11 or 12 years old, we got cable. We would watch the Braves and the Cubs every day on WGST or WTBS and then WGN. 
So everybody where I grew up, we were all Braves fan and Cubs fans. We watched the Cubs with Harry Carey in the afternoon. And then the Braves, you know, I grew up listening to Ernie Johnson and Skip Carey. And th those were great days listening to them on, watching them on TV and listening to them on the radio. So I think that's where the, the love of baseball. I grew up in Chattanooga. We had a, a double A affiliated team. Uh, like most of the time, these, these teams, they would, they were the A's, then they were the Mariners, then they were the Reds, but it was always fun going to a minor league baseball game in Chattanooga, the lookouts. Yeah. So you were a lookouts fan growing up, I guess, as a kid. Is that right? Or when did I you? Was. I guess, yep. Yes, I remember going the first time. And I believe they were the A's in the 70s. But that was a lot of fun growing up. And, you know, still to this day, and we can talk a little bit about minor league baseball, but it's, it's still a, a great family entertainment. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's different than going to a major league game. It, it's, it's, it's more... Of intimate setting, and it's more affordable for families, obviously. And you do things at a minor league game you don't do, you know, it's almost like a circus show during the innings, all the fun things that they do. And you can still get a dollar fifty hot dog and a dollar fifty beer, not like major league where I had to pay twenty dollars to get a beer and a hot dog, you know. Yeah. We took my daughter to a triple-A game the other day, Gwinnett Braves, and or Gwinnett yeah. Stripers now. And she thought she saw Mickey Mouse because their striper mascot looks somewhat like Mickey Mouse. So that might save us a few thousand dollars in a trip to Disney World because her face yeah. lit up. And you're yeah, no right. Different. like No kidding. And kids and minor league baseball, I fell in love with it. You know, I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we had, you know, the Fort Wayne Wizards back at the day. And loved it. And that was probably the things that I grew up with, whether it was the Fort Wayne Wizards or listening to yeah WGN and Harry Carey and all that. So we have a very similar background there. Now, growing up, being a Lookouts fan, Chattanooga, and then at one point owning, right, the Chattanooga Lookouts, like, was that a goal of yours? Like looking back at it? Or how'd you come to have that kind of yeah. be something you wanted to do and then you actually accomplished it? Well, th there was a great opportunity for the lookouts, the, the people that had bought the lookouts back in the 90s had done a really good job of keeping them in town, and they had built a stadium that they paid for. In, in today's dollars, it wasn't an extravagant stadium like we're seeing now, even on down to AA, AAA, but it was a, a new stadium. They The lookouts had played in Ingle Field for 90 to 100 years, and, and in 1990, they had to get a new stadium. And the family that had purchased them owned the team, I think, in Portland, Maine. And they they came to Chattanooga, bought that team, and they decided they wanted to liquidate the team for, for several reasons. And there was a great opportunity. I actually bid on the team at first and missed. And the gentleman that had won it, the bid, ended up backing out. I think he was from Warner Robins. And they called me. I was on a business trip and they said, are you still interested? And I said, very interested. And got the opportunity to, to bring in a gentleman by the name of Jason Fryer, who basically, I didn't know anything about running a baseball team. Jason is just a dynamite guy, very smart, very, very smart. And started out kind of working on the legal side of MLB 
went to Harvard, Yale, and grew up in New York. Just loves minor league baseball. Ironically, he bought the Fort Wayne Tim Caps, who is an A affiliate team for the San Diego Padres. And I think still to this last 10 years, the most attended minor league team in the country. Built a new stadium. I had the opportunity to meet Jason. He had also had the team down in Savannah who would not help him with a new stadium and ended up was forced to move them to Columbia, South Carolina, rename them the Fireflies. And so Jason came in, became the managing director of the Lookouts and has done a tremendous job. That was in 2014. And he is currently working on building a new stadium that's going to be unbelievable. So what's happened in Major League Baseball, as you know, the new stadiums are being replaced. They're 600 to 900 million dollars. Look at the battery. And there's so many things different how you build a stadium now. I'm getting so old. I remember when they built Camden Yards, who when they built the Ted Turner Field after Fulton County Stadium, they kind of re- replaced it with a lot of people wanted a stadium like Camden Yards. I saw the other day Baltimore's looking to replace their stadium. That's how old I am now. The new stadiums. There's so much more entertainment going on for the fan experience than just a baseball game. It's like you do go to Disney World. You got shops and restaurants and batting cages, and it's just a lot of things to do. And and it's an experience still driven by the baseball. So the new stadiums are 600, 900 million. Well, that's trickled down to minor league, where the average stadium now for minor league is 50 to 60 million dollars. So, as you may know, there was a contraction in minor league baseball of about 40 teams. Some of it had to do with geographical, but most of it had to do with stadiums. These kids now are getting million-dollar signing bonuses out of high school. These owners don't want them playing on cheap fields with pebbles and rocks on them that's going to get hurt. They don't want them bussing them for two days to play four games. So there's been an uplift in the the stadiums, and that's where Jason really has done well with his teams, is changing the fan experience for minor league. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of, not to get long-winded, that's kind of how we got involved in Chattanooga. We knew it was going to need a new stadium. The one they built in 1990 was very outdated. It was, I think, paid for like $9.5 million, which would be about $14 million today. Well, with inflation, it might be a little bit more than that. But still, the stadium he's building is probably a $50, $60 million stadium. They're building the owner of the Smokies in Knoxville is building the same type stadium, 50 or $60 million in Knoxville. So that's going on across the country is a better minor league stadiums. So when you decided, hey, you know what, I want to own a piece of the lookouts, what drew you to Jason? Because it sounds like it was kind of like a business partnership where you brought something to the table and he brought something to the table. Is that how it worked out? Or yeah, how did that I, I just called him and said, look, I've, I've got the, I put myself in a good position. I got the opportunity by the lookouts. The, the family that's going to sell it, they're, mo- they're not motivated. They had gone through three or four buyers. They were trying to find the right person. I said, well, really what they want is somebody's going to buy them and keep them in Chattanooga. But Jason said, well, look, this was 2014. Here it is, 2023, 24. He's 
just getting the stadium done. It's it's a long process. He had done it before a couple times. And that was my attraction to him was a couple things. He knew I had to operate daily, and I learned a lot from him of how to operate a baseball team. But second, what he brought was the ability to get a stadium. And the the teams that, that – well, they're the Reds right now. And Chattanooga at first was on the contraction list. There would have still been a team, but it wouldn't have been affiliated with a major league team. And Jason worked hard to get them off of that list. And then he worked very hard to get the funding for the stadium and to get the, you know, help get the land, get it rezoned, stuff I helped him with. But he didn't really know how to do it. That was my attraction to Jason, was just somebody that you could trust and that you knew how to operate, knew how to operate a minor league team. And it sounds like, you know, he's been there and done that. So you weren't making a bet or a gamble that he could figure it right. out. He'd already yeah, been, he'd there, been and- there done that. Right. You, you, you got to figure out how much of your revenue you're trying to do three and a half to $5 million with a minor league team. You're not responsible for the payroll of the players, but you are responsible for the stadium, depending on your deal with the current municipality or city. The groundskeepers, your day-to-day people, you have to pay. So there's quite a bit of cost. You're always running into obstacles. I mean, we were shut down with COVID, and you're, you get rain out. Sometimes it can wipe out a whole weekend. And you got to figure out where your revenue source is coming from. It's usually 25 25% on st- concessions. And then you have ticket sales, and then you have suites sales. Mostly it's corporate sponsors can be 15 to 25% of the top line revenue. And then you've got also apparel, which you really want to brand a lot of people, as many people in that market. The lookouts, it's a brand people know a lot of places. It's been around 100 years. But a lot of people like wearing the minor league brands. You know, you see people wearing retro jerseys and stuff. It got popular there for a while, people buying minor league brands. It, there's two reasons you, you buy a team. One is you just love sports or love baseball, and you want to own a minor league team. That's great, and, and you want to do it to help the community. Second is if you can buy one that doesn't have a new stadium and you have the opportunity to put in a new stadium, and grow the and it's in a market that's growing like Chattanooga, then that's a that even adds more reason to to pull the trigger and do the deal. And that was one of the things that was great was, man, look at what could happen here in the next ten years. And like I thought, it's happening. Chattanooga's growing. People are getting out of California. They've all gone moved to Nashville. Now they're starting to move to Chattanooga. It's a Income states income tax free or retirements. People that can buy a house there is cheap versus other markets. So Chattanooga's really been growing the last, really the last eight years. And then it's in a, a city where the stadium's 30 years old, falling apart, and they got to have a new stadium based on Major League Baseball's new vision of what you need to have in order to be able to have a franchise there, a team. Yeah, it, it takes a true visionary to see those things that you're mentioning because you're thinking three years out, five years out, and I think that's where a lot of business owners 
one, a lot of them are thinking five years out, 10 years out, but then they forget, all right, well, what do I need to do today to make sure that long-term vision happens? And there are some business owners that they're so stuck in the weeds, they're not able to think five years out, 10 years out, and a lot of their competitors pass them up where you were the one that was seeing a few years out. You had Jason that kind of came in to run the day-to-day, which is really good. What I'm hearing is you just had a lot of really good relationships in Chattanooga and people trusted that you were going to get the job done and you were liquid and you were ready to take advantage of an opportunity when you saw it. And it sounds like you were looking for three or four different boxes to check. And if they check those boxes, it was a winner. And I think going back to the most important thing is, hey, you had this vision, but you needed the operator to actually execute that vision. Because you mentioned earlier, John, that you're not the day-to-day guy, right? I'm not. I've never been. Look, you know, I spent 35 years running model portfolios too is my main business and i would tell people if you're going to hire us give us three to five years you know you can't judge us in 12 months and you would talk to them about risk adjusted return and you would talk to them about buying great companies with projections and how over a certain amount of time you you you're going to be correlated with s p 500 but you should beat the s p 500 with less risk or you shouldn't be hiring me well, being in business is the same thing. I don't care how good your product is and how big your market is. If you don't have a plan and somebody that can operate and execute that plan, a lot of investors, angel or mezzanine investors are sitting around a boardroom. They make ideas seem great, but you, you got to have a plan you can go execute. Now, you know, if, if you can't execute and you don't, you better move to plan B in a hurry. I've seen some companies harvest in the end that were doing something totally different than what they started out doing. And I always tell the story. Can you imagine when, if you and I were sitting in the boardroom 20 years ago and I, or 30 years ago and IBM starts talking about, we're not going to make money off top riders anymore. Or AT&T is talking about, we're not going to be able to charge long distance anymore. Those are people that pivoted. I'm seeing it today, companies, technology companies, getting more into cybersecurity, like Cisco, you know, that was an IT company. You, you always got to be changing, reinventing yourself. But whatever your model is or your plan, you have to have somebody to execute. You have to have an operator. And you have to leave them alone. You can't. You got to check in with them quarterly as a shareholder and as a board member, and you got to give them three to five years to try to execute. Barring that they're not doing something irrational or illegal, there's really no reason to replace them. And then, so just like sports, you know, these poor coaches today, they some of them get a year or two, and the fans are so impatient, they're firing them. And that's just, you know, I don't understand that. I mean, the poor guy down at Auburn, he got one and a half years at Auburn to try to turn a program around. Nobody liked him down there. He came in from not from the South and he never got a real shake. I mean, coaches used to last 25, 30 years. And so now you got to execute and turn things around in two to three years or you're fired. And I'm seeing that more and more in business. And you just, you got to have a, a board check off on a budget and a model. And you got to give it over to, to a, a CEO who's got to have a good COO and a CFO. 
and a good sales team and you got to let them go execute. Yeah, that's real good. Well, I think it's a good transition into maybe the next subject, John. You've had a lot of home runs in your career, tons of successes, tons of wins. You know, looking back at it, any swing and a misses, do-overs? I know you got yourself in a couple situations now that may or may not be worth talking about, but yeah. appreciate you sharing well, some wisdom. Yeah, look, I, I, I think wisdom is better than IQ sometimes when you get older. Nothing replaces work ethic but and drive and, and, and having, you know, also I think it's very important to have self-confidence without being egotistical. But I don't think you know how to make money until you have, learn how to lose money. I think you've got to have losers. Obviously, uh, a lot of these great entrepreneurs, if you study them, they were down and out on their first few ideas or, or some of them, their first six ideas. And they had the ability to get knocked down and get back up and learn from their mistakes. And and I, I have had losers. I, I, ironically, Casey, I met you exiting out of you were one guy that had ability, you know, in 2003, 2004, 2005, everybody wanted to get into these plyometric speed and agility, baseball academies, and it became a commodity. There were so many of them. And what happened was the models didn't work because we were all running around with 35,000 square foot old warehouses that we were trying to turn into a successful model. I got involved with Velocity Sports Performance and a company, Sports Arama, and we were combining those with also trying to do team sporting good sales. We we did okay in some areas. Velocity had 86 franchises. I had seven of those, and I ended up leading the charge to take over the franchisor who had done a lot of things good, but but they were losing money. We took that over. I recapitalized the company, put in a new board, named a new CEO. Two years later, that we were not congruent in the boardroom of how to go forward on the model. And, uh, you know, how I met you was we sold our Atlanta facility to you. We, it was myself and my partner. And you really took that and ran with it. You came in with a totally different model. And, you know, kind of remodeled what we loved. I thought we'd built great. And you came in and said, no, they got to move this here and this here. And then you put, you wrote them. I remember you showed me the manual you put together. You were an operator. I saw that firsthand that you knew how to take something and, and change. But first off, my partner and I were absentee. And neither one of us were operators. We were more investors. And we sold it to you who knew how to come in and operate and was there daily. And I think that also makes a big difference. You need to be there daily with your hands on it rather than, you know, I was, I'm sure you've watched that McDonald's movie where Roy Kroc was selling all the first franchisees to absentee people in his church and are not church from his country club. And they were absentee country club people and none of the McDonald's franchises were working. He started selling them to people in his church that were there daily and it made all the difference in the world. So I think the, the, my loser was that sector of, you know, you build a model and you're trying to do this plyometric for 
275, 300 a month, and that turned into 75 a month. Next thing you know, you got a lot of trainers running around with cone shoots and ladders in their trunk of their car, training kids in parks. And what you thought you were going to charge 300 a month for turned into $75 a month. Rent rolled, rent went up, payroll went up, and the model didn't work. I met, I went and visited so many people that had ex-pro athletes, NFL, MLB, that had these 30, 35,000 square foot facilities and they could not make them profitable. You, it was amazing to watch you with D-Bats, if you don't mind me telling that brand and, and your background. It, it was interesting when you came in, I remember when we sold to you and closed, I was like, hey, good luck to you. I hope you, you seem like you have a good idea of what you want to do with this place. And you did it. You made that place successful. And I think you went on to open some more. Did you, how many did you open? Yeah, we ended up building five. And I think you were on it, John. And going back to the Ray Kroc reference, I talk a lot about the visionary and the integrator, how every business needs a visionary. They need somebody that's a few years out. They're the idea person. They're the connector. They're the relationship. They're the energy for the business. They're the innovator. But you need the integrator, which is what Ray Kroc, I don't think, ever had until he found McDonald's. And he ended up finding Fred Turner, who was his kind of operating partner. Now, Ray and Fred together created the right business model, and then they created the right system, and then it was just operating the system. And I think that's, you're right, where a lot of businesses, they don't have the right model or they don't have the right system to execute the model. And you're right, we saw your guys' opportunity as, hey, yeah, this model doesn't work, but this model, I believe, would. We simplified yeah. it, we optimized it, and then we you know, scaled it up and built you know, five more locations. Yeah. I think Croc realized, too, that guy explained to him he was in the real estate business, too, not the hamburger business. <laughs> but yep. to your point, you were an operator, and it goes to show what we were talking about earlier. You have to have an operator. And I don't care how smart you are. You got to know how to operate. And there's a lot of people know how to manage money, raise money, sell. They, they know how to, to go out and meet people. They know how to network. That, that doesn't mean you're an operator. Okay. I don't, I don't care how well you know the industry. You, you got to be able to do the daily operations. So that was my biggest failure. You know, I've had failures. I would invest in some of these private equity funds and I figured out real early they'd invest 10, 10 things and they only needed two to really work <laughs> two to three and they were home runs two or three they exited for hopefully what they put in it three or four went dark bankrupt and that's what private e equity is all about and uh, you know I had built a very successful you know, I've had a long two years. I, I can't talk about it because it's ongoing, but I have been in civil court with the SEC. And I, I think what I've learned in all this is you got to be detail oriented. But, you know, I think where I got myself in a lot of trouble is getting into that private equity space. That's where you really got to be careful. And my, my back, I should have just stuck what I like to do. I, I'm really good at getting somebody to open an account at TD Ameritrade Schwab, buying one of our models. We implemented fixed income of that or a fixed index annuity. A lot of people though, from 2012 to 2020, 
they started wanting what we called alternative investments. And they didn't want to be correlated with the indexes. They wanted something different. And that's kind of dried up now. All the hedge funds closed down during the market boom. And they're, you're going to start seeing hedge funds coming back now in a sideways to down market. But though we all, <clears throat> to answer your question, we all have losers. I think the biggest thing that somebody can do is what we talked about earlier, just learn from your mistakes. Look in the mirror and accept responsibility for your mistakes. And a lot of people have trouble admitting they've made mistakes or bad decisions. And I think that's just part of your journey in life is, you know, when, when everything's good and going easy, life's easy. That's not where you build your character. You're going to build your character when things are tough. And, but, but you've got to learn to somehow find it within you after you're remorseful and admit your mistakes. You've got to move on down the road or you're just going to get run over, you know? Yeah. What have you learned, you know, over this, these past couple of years, you think that are good takeaways that, you know, you'd like to share? Well, I think you need to keep your eye on the ball. You know, I, I, I think you need to stay engaged. And you've got, you've got to learn to delegate to be, to grow your business. You've got to learn to be able to, you know, if you're, if you're going to take an idea and you're going to figure out how to grow it, you're going to have to learn to delegate. But you also need to make sure you have a good, clear understanding of what's going on around you. You can't be growing so fast that you're losing control of some things. And you also got to weigh the consequences on what you do. Like uh, I'm a deal maker. I, I guess I grew up a corner cutter. Great. I see gray areas. Stay within the lines and just, you know, all go take a deep breath as a t most people in business are type A and they focus on the end result and they're in a big hurry to get there. And it, you just realize it's a marathon, not a sprint. And, and when you figure that out, you'll save yourself a lot of complications in life, I can assure you. Do you find that a lot of business owners, they are successful at one thing, but then they try something else? And Oh, my gosh. You know, doctors are the worst. They're so smart, and they, they do what they do, and they make money. And then they decide, I know her more than anybody in the room. And doctors are notorious of losing so much money in business ventures. And there are a lot of people that make a lot of money in one thing, and they're really good at it. And then they decide, I can make money in a lot of things. And that's where they get in trouble. You're, you're much better off. The only time you'll be passive is if you believe in a venture deal and who's operating it. And it gets funded properly. And you trust the people. If if you're get like Elon Musk, he's running so many companies right now. He's but he sleeps two hours a day. And you know, Twitter, you know, saying fifteen percent of it going down is because they're worried about he spending. I mean, Tesla going down because they're worried he spends too much time at Twitter. He's the exception rather than the rule. Most people, you really have to be engaged and focused on what you're doing. I've learned that too. That's something I've learned is don't spread yourself too thin. Yeah, I think so. No, I think I think that's right. Well, let's jump to our last segment here, John. We call it chin music. 
you know, one piece of advice, whether it's somebody that's listening here, the majority of people that are listening here, they're a leader, they're a coach, they're an entrepreneur, right? They're running a business. What is one piece of chin music, the biggest piece of advice you would give to our listeners? I think in any aspect of whether it's business or sports, just surround yourself with good people that you can trust and learn to delegate. Don't be a control freak and continue as I gotten older, continue building, working on your relationships. Okay. Don't make the relationships one-sided or don't make it just about financial or performance in sports. Take a better interest in other aspects of their life. And I think that's what a true leader does. Whether you're a CEO or a head coach, I think when you take the time to get to know someone that, and you build that foundation of a rock solid relationship. And look, I've been through some things the last two years. I'd have told you I had a hundred friends going into it. Probably I had 30 good friends. And a lot of that might have been my fault. All right. A lot of it was my fault. So I, after what I've been through a lot, I, I'm really, really, you appreciate a lot of things. You know, I went through about a, 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 a situation with cancer. And 50 years old, I found out I had colon cancer, had to go to MD Anderson, have surgery. It, it makes you wake up in life. You have an epiphany. Then it, that lasts a little while. Then you catch yourself right back on track doing what you were doing. What I've figured out, I'm 58 years old now, and I think the one thing you need to cherish as a business owner or an operator's officer, director, whatever you are, shareholder, or you're the head coach, assistant coach, offense coordinator, bench coach, pitching coach, I don't care what you are, cherish your relationships. I think that's the most important thing in life because I think at the end of the day, that's what your legacy is going to be. John? Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you making time today, and I know Dugout Nation is going to be blessed by the wisdom that you gave us. So thanks again for being a guest and the Dugout CEO. Well, listen, I appreciate you having me. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Cool. Thanks, John. Appreciate you. Dugout Nation, what an eye-opening experience for me and my time with John. As a human, I feel for him, and I hope he is remorseful and he has learned from this, and he comes back a better man, a husband, and a father. And as an entrepreneur and advisor that works with entrepreneurs and investors, it's easy to see how something like this happened. He had a 35-year career delivering results for clients that came to a screaming halt. And number one, we all make mistakes. Me, you, we all do. We have to first admit that they were made, understand why they were made, and move on. And here is my outsider's thoughts of why this might have happened. And this is just my own personal opinion based on working with personalities and people similar to John. John, he had a very successful business. He helped investors build out simple, modeled portfolios that delivered traditional returns, safe, yet very boring. And he knew he was great at it. He was good at building relationships, building out these portfolios, and helping clients play the long game. And he had a very successful billion-dollar business doing that. And then the game changed. People, his clients, they got greedy. Why would I just want an 8% return when my brother-in-law just invested in some alternative investment and is getting 18%? If I can get 18% and, hey, I might be able to retire two years earlier. So what happened? They might have called John. Hey, I'm not satisfied with my return. What else can you offer me? And instead of realizing, hey, look, 
this is my niche and my expertise. I offer modeled portfolios, 8% returns, play the long game. He realized that, hey, I need to figure out a way to meet this demand of his client. And he got into an entirely different line of business, private equity. And he realized, hey, if his clients won't buy, they'll go elsewhere. And he provided a solution that they wanted, but it wasn't in his niche. It wasn't something that he was an expert at. Thus, mistakes were made. And that type of business was different. It required operators. It required detail. It required oversight, which ultimately wasn't his skill set and not what he loved to do. And those investments were just a lot different. So he lost focus on what he was great at. And I think a lot of potential people and clients, they look at what's possible, right? And they see the grass is greener type of equation. And at the end of the day, the grass is greener always where you plant. And I see this in entrepreneurs all the time. Just because they're good at one thing, thinks they're going to be good at something else. They lose focus on their core business and they start chasing opportunities and things that seem more promising. And I really hope that you got a lot out of this episode. Maybe it's what to do. Maybe it's what not to do. And I encourage you, depending on where you're at, reach out to John, message him, encourage him, pray for him if you are a person of prayer. I know that his story will be different and your story can be different. So look, you might also be thinking, what about these investors? Uh, what about their money they potentially lost? Well, as an investor, never invest money in something if you're not okay losing it. Have a well-diversified portfolio of traditional investments, alternative investments, but make sure your career and your business is the main thing. And if you do choose to invest in others, make sure they're experts at what they do and they're passionate about what they're investing in and you're going to be in really good shape. Thank you for joining us once more for another episode of The Dugout CEO. We want to get you the tips you need to become an MVP at what you do. Sign up for our Friday Focus newsletter and you'll receive a valuable tip each Friday morning to help you build the business and life you want. You can sign up by going to CaseyCavell.com or click the link in the show notes. And make sure to hit the subscribe button so you get notification on our next episode. And one way you can help us book more great guests like this is to please leave us a rating and honest review in the Apple or Spotify podcasting app.